Hello and welcome back to another episode of Educating Humans, a podcast in Australia about Australian ideas of classical and liberal arts education. There's lots that's been said about this overseas, particularly from the States, uh, but we wanted to have a distinctly Australian voice on these ideas. So my name is Diff, and once again, I'm joined as always by my good friend James. We have been looking at the abolition of man, and we were finished up on chapter one, which was really talking about men without chests. And that's this idea that uh, if we try and remove value and objective value, then we are actually removing what is a core part of humanity and our ability to be able to uh, act in general, but also act with ethical or moral principles guiding us. Uh, and so this whole thing has been a defense of objective value, and we've kind of gotten to the point where he's debunked to some extent, the subjective, uh, the subjectivist argument against objective values. And so this week we're moving on to chapter two. Yeah, and we'll remember that we started by talking about, or C.S. Lewis started in The Abolition of Man in chapter one, talking about a book by Gaius and Titius, The Green Book, in which really one of the things that they're doing, perhaps unintentionally, perhaps intentionally, Lewis doesn't, he's not speculating on that, but he's saying that one of the effects of the kind of education that they're doing is to erode the idea of objective value. And I, I thought it would be good just to remind people where we finished up because it's one of my favorite little paragraphs. So this is the last paragraph of the first chapter before we move on to the second chapter. He says this, And all the time, such is the tragic comedy of our situation, we continue to clamor for those very qualities we are rendering impossible. We make men without chests and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honour and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and bid the geldings be fruitful. And so, and what he's talking about there is the fact that the educational program, the, the thing that has taken over education, is debunking, is pulling apart, is deconstructing the very idea of honour and virtue and honesty and goodness and kind of saying these things are just emotions these things don't really objectively exist mm. but we still want people to have these feelings we want people to be honorable even though we put them through 12 years of education in which we basically say that honor doesn't really exist we're still living in a world where we want people to have values even though we've pulled these values apart and we have claimed that there's no such thing as them at all and we talked a little bit last last time over the last two episodes and i think it's worth discussing before we move on because the next chapter which is called the way and is about the Tao, it's this idea that lewis has got about well where does objective value come from it is going to be talking about the fact that it is impossible to ignore objective value if you want to have any kind of values mm. if you want to say that there are values then You've got to say, well, where are they coming from? In other words, the Tao is kind of impossible to debunk. However, I think, and we talked about it last time, I think we might have moved past the particular problem that Lewis was seeing, which is the debunking of values. And that actually what we're seeing now is have values, mm. create them for yourself, but we do want people to have this honour and we do want people to have, you know, social justice issues are really about this exact thing. It's, we, we care a lot about justice, which is good, but we've disconnected it from other things. Mm. And, and that, I think, is going to be an interesting thing for us to discuss in light of the next chapter. Yes, definitely. And I think 
I mean, C.S. Lewis said it really well in, in chapter one, that if you want to argue against people's uh, beliefs or their values, you can do that within objective value and argue for it based on the level of objective value. The issue is that that is not the way the Green Book's going about it, because what they're saying is that there is no objective value. And now that they've entered into this realm, well, they've actually removed the ability to have any arguments about values. So we may be in a, in a position now where we find ourselves arguing about everyone's values, but what we're really arguing about from our position is feelings. And then we have no actual ground to stand on in that regard, which makes for a very messy dialogue. Yeah, it's about we, we struggle these days to get back to first things. You know, so we talk about an issue and we keep the issue as the issue, but we never kind of trace it back to look for the foundations or the mm. platforms upon which these issues, well, where they come from and upon which our arguments are based. We kind of just want to pluck an idea free floating from the air, talk about it. And as soon as someone says, well, what about X, you know, which is connected to it, we're like, oh, no, we're not talking about that. Well, you can't do that. You mm. can't just talk about one thing in isolation from everything else. Mm -hmm. Things are connected. Mm -hmm. But the disconnecting process of the Green Book is leading us to believe that it's possible for things to be disconnected, mm -hmm. that it's possible to talk about things in isolation from each other. And that is why, as you said, the dialogue is becoming so messy. And this does lead us to the first sentence of this second chapter here, uh, and it kind of helps us to understand what he really means by this, because he says, the practical result of education in the spirit of the Green Book must be the destruction of the society which accepts it. Yeah, it's massive. It's, I mean, it's a really massive statement, and it's a great way to start a second chapter, to suggest that if you accept this kind of education, it is going to destroy the, the society that accepts it. And obviously that's something that he's going to need to prove. But really, he's kind of already proved it because he's, he's discussed the way that it's cyclical, that it's kind of like um, self-refuting. This mm -hmm. argument goes around in circles and mm -hmm. it never really terminates anywhere. And how can you have a society, the idea of a society being a group of people that are kind of united by a common vision, if you've disconnected everything from each other and you've said there is no such thing as a common vision? Yes. Like how are you going to have society as a result of that? So he goes on to say, but this is not necessarily a refutation of subjectivism about values as a theory. The true doctrine might be a doctrine which, if we accept, we die. No one who speaks from within the Tao could reject it on that account. But it is not yet come to that. There are theoretical difficulties in the philosophy of Gaius and Titius. And that's exactly what this chapter is going to be about. Lewis is going to spend some time, and this is valuable time. In some ways, chapter 2 is almost like this uh, injection between chapter 1 and 3, mm. which are kind of the central points. But in chapter 2, he's saying that it actually doesn't work. What Geis and Tishas are trying to do doesn't work. So you can you can not read chapter 2 and probably still make sense out of the whole thing, but chapter 2 is vital for us in today's world to be able to recognise that there is a circular reasoning here when it comes to trying to debunk values to say values don't exist, but at the same time to try to push your own values mm. onto someone. And that's what he's going to talk about, the theoretical difficulties in the philosophy of Gaius and Titius. And what we might say is, to generalise it, the theoretical difficulties of relativism or subjectivism, if you are going to make any statements at all that you expect other people to agree with. You can kind of be a relativist, 
as long as you don't ever talk to anyone or expect to have a conversation with anyone that makes sense. If everything is relative, then even the words that I'm speaking are relative and I shouldn't expect you to understand the words that I'm saying. But if you are trying to subscribe to a subjectivist or to a relativist perspective, such as that which is coming through Gaius and Titius, if you expect to be able to do that and still have values somewhere, Mm. you expect to have your cake and eat it too, then it's just not going to work. Yes. I think if you you can think of this whole book as parts one and three are a real defense for the necessity of objective value. And the second chapter here is a refutation uh, to say that, well, we need not, we need objective value in terms of a defense, but to say, well, there's actually no other option. Yeah. Logically it has to exist. Yes. Yeah. So let's read. He says, however subjective they may be about some traditional values, Gaius and Titius have shown by the very act of writing the Green Book that there must be some other values about which they are not subjective at all. So good. It's so Mm. clearly logical and it just pulls it apart. They write in order to produce certain states of mind in the rising generation, if not because they think those states of mind intrinsically just or good, yet certainly because they think them to be the means to some state of society which they regard as desirable. It would not be difficult, though it would be unkind, to collect from various passages in the Green Book what their ideal is, but we need not. The important point is not the precise nature of their end, but the fact that they have an end at all. They must have, or this book, being purely practical in intention, is written to no purpose. Mm. What do you make of that? In short, if you wanted to summarize that in a sentence, he's saying they're trying to tell us that all values are subjective, that it's all based on emotion, everyone has a right opinion. But they cannot have that if they are in their same book trying to say that their values are the right values or the ones that people should believe. That If they're trying to convince someone of their values, they're instantly engaging in a discussion of values beyond subjective emotion. Absolutely. They've debunked value and yet they are saying that they have a value attached to that it is a particular value that they're saying that if everybody believed what we believe things would be better off it would be good however they've basically said that that doesn't exist that that good thing doesn't really exist so it's circular so as he says they must have or this book is written to no purpose they must have an end or else why would they write the book it reminds me of the book by Roland Barthes, The Death of the Author, in which he, this is kind of the postmodern turn, he's writing about the fact that, you know, when you write words, your intention dies, the author dies, and it's just the reader that makes sense of the words mm. that are there. And it always struck me as interesting that he wrote a book about it. He wrote a book <laughs> trying to communicate the fact that he would never be able to communicate. Mm. Now, I mean, that's trivializing a little bit, and it is more complex than that. But at the end of the day, the point remains. They have some sort of end. Otherwise, they wouldn't have written the book. Let's bring this back because it could be quite tricky for someone to understand in their head what we're we're really hitting on here. But imagine if I said to you, all emotions and all thoughts and all opinions are valid. They're all true. Your truth is your truth. And you responded to me. What would you respond? Is that true? Well, I'd say yes. And you would say. But I don't believe it is. In my opinion, that's not true. Am I right about that? And then this is the issue, because if I say, yes, you're right, then my whole position is wrong. But if I say, no, you're wrong, then my whole position is wrong, because therefore... You contradicted yourself. Exactly. Not every argument can be true. 
Yeah, so I remember when I was in when I was in first year undergrad uni, my one of my lecturers was basically advocating for this sort of saying, you know, like you can't really communicate properly. My intention, your, you know, my intentions when I speak are interpreted by you, and it was a, it was a kind of an identity course. So it's interpreted by your culture, by your age, by your gender, by your race, by your religion, and you kind of pass through all these filters. And so it's really impossible to have proper communication. And I remember saying to him, "Does that mean that if I fail the course, I didn't really fail the course? You did, because you didn't understand. <laughs> you didn't understand what I wrote. It's not my fault that you didn't understand what I wrote." But you can see, I mean, it's, again, trivialising it, but, and to be honest, it didn't do well in that course, probably because I was taking that approach. But if it's all all about the reader response, if it's all about interpretation, then you can never have proper communication. And it really would make you question, well, why would you bother to try to communicate effectively? Because mm. there's no such thing as effective communication. Mm-hmm. It's impossible mm-hmm. to do. So this is what he goes on to say. They've written this book. They've got an end. And this end must have real value in their eyes. To abstain from calling it good and to use instead such predicates as necessary or progressive or efficient would be a subterfuge. They could be forced by argument to answer the questions necessary for what, progressing towards what, effecting what. In the last resort, they would have to admit that some state of affairs was in their opinion good for its own sake. And this time, they could not maintain that good simply describe their own emotion about it. For the whole purpose of their book is to so condition the young reader that he will share their approval. And this would be either a fool's or a villain's undertaking unless they held that their approval was in some way valid or correct. Mm. Their scepticism about values is on the surface. This is I, I love the way that he makes this point because this is what we see in society today all the time, I think. Their scepticism about values is on the surface. It is for use on other people's values. About the values current in their own set, they are not nearly sceptical enough. So we can be very sceptical about other people's values, and we say all of these things about tolerance, for example, Mm. is a great example of it. Like, everyone's got to be tolerant. But really what I mean is everyone's got to be tolerant of my opinions. Mm -hmm. And if someone else is intolerant, do I tolerate that? No, they're a bigot. It's very, very difficult for me to know what to do in that situation because I'm I'm trying to promulgate tolerance as this high, you know, it's it's a good that is above a lot of other goods. It's a very high value. And so do I tolerate intolerance? And if I don't tolerate intolerance, how do I go about doing that? And am I not just cutting off, you know, cutting myself off at the feet? Mm. Are you not accepting intolerance of some things, you know? It's actually a classic thing you hear people say. You say, I'm tolerant of everyone except the intolerant i've I've seen people post that on twitter before and yeah. the instant that you say but then you're not tolerant of yourself then because you're intolerant towards the intolerant and the question is and and this is the point that lewis is going to make we all draw a line somewhere mm. we all deep down when we have these values we all deep down are drawing from something that we think is actually objective mm-hmm. no matter how subjective we think things really are we do draw down from something that we think is objective And he says, and this is very usual, a great many of those who debunk traditional or, as they would say, sentimental values have in the background values of their own, which they believe to be immune from the debunking process. And Mm -hmm. we could say maybe today this, a great many of those who debunk traditional or that, as they would say, regressive 
or overly conservative, mm-hmm. or old, patriarchal, capitalist, whatever you want, whatever enemy you want to put in there, they debunk those values. They have in the background values of their own, which they believe to be immune from the debunking process. The important thing to note here as well is because someone could listen to this and they could say, well, these guys are just a bunch of guys that don't like the progressive philosophies and methodologies, and they're using this argument against subjectivism to rally against all of these other schools of thought. But the argument here isn't this. Like you could, the argument is the, the process of debunking through a route of subjectivism. That's right. It's not about actually arguing with these ideas. You could put any idea in there, and if you're arguing for or against it through subjectivism, then you're actually being counterintuitive to the argument you're making. Yeah, it's a really good point, and it is a point that he makes in here as well. He's not saying that you can't have arguments about value. Of course you can but you need to have a starting point. Mm. If you are coming at it from subjectivism, you may as well not start at all because everything is subjective. There's nothing to talk about. So let's continue, he says, to use the previous example, that of a death for a good cause. You remember in previous episodes, he used the example of the fact that it's a good and noble thing to die for one's country. Let us suppose that an innovator in values regards dolce et decorum and greater love hath no man as mere irrational sentiments which are to be stripped off in order that we may get down to the realistic or basic ground of this value. Where will he find such a ground? And that's what the question's all about. Where is the foundation? Well, first of all, Lewis says, he might say that the real value lay in the utility of such sacrifice to the community. Good, he might say, means what is useful to the community. But of course, the death of the community is not useful to the community only the death of some of its members. What is really meant is that the death of some men is useful to other men, and that is very true. But on what ground are some men being asked to die for the benefit of others? Every appeal to pride, honour, shame or love is excluded by hypothesis. To use these would be to return to sentiment, and the innovator's task, now the innovator here, he's talking about the person who's trying to get, who's trying to debunk values as subjective, mm-hmm. The innovator's task is, having cut all of that away, to explain to men in terms of pure reasoning why they will be well advised to die that others may live. He may say, unless some of us risk death, all of us are certain to die. But that will only be true in a limited number of cases, and even when it is true, it provokes the very reasonable counter-question, why should I be one of those who take the risk? At this point, the innovator may ask why, after all, selfishness should be more rational or intelligent than altruism. And the answer must be that a refusal to sacrifice oneself is no more rational than a consent to do so, and no less rational. Neither choice is rational or irrational at all. From propositions about fact alone, no practical conclusion can ever be drawn. This will preserve society, cannot lead to do this except by the mediation of society ought to be preserved. This will cost your life, cannot lead directly to do not do this. It can lead to it only through a felt desire or an acknowledged duty of self-preservation. So it strikes me that one of the things that he's talking about here, and you can hear it in the examples that he's using, is the is-ought dilemma Mm. in philosophy of Mm -hmm. David Hume, right? Which sometimes can be reduced down to the naturalistic philosophy, but let's not make it about that. Let's not make it about saying that because something's natural, it's therefore good, because that's a bit more complicated. 
But David Hume would say that you cannot derive an is from an ought. Mm-hmm. And so when you're presented with that, the question becomes, well, where do we get ought statements from? Is there any such thing as ought? What ought I to do? How do I work out what I ought to do? You know, there, for an example, you could say, uh, smoking is bad for your health, therefore you ought not smoke. We've got an is statement, smoking is bad for your health. We've got an ought statement, therefore you ought not smoke. But you can see that there's a deeper thing going on there. Well, what we're really saying is that health is good. And therefore, the ought is that we should try to preserve our health because health is good. And so we should be moving towards the good. So the is-ought dilemma, the suggestion that you cannot derive an is from an ought, really kind of leaves us floating, not knowing where we can get a sense of oughtness from, of morality from, Mm. where do values come from if they don't come from the created order of the world in which we live. Mm -hmm. It's it's a very good point. And it's really good to be able to pick up that fact that you know, once you remove values, it doesn't mean you remove basic intelligibility. Those who live in the subjectivist worldview could still say, this is going to happen. We can observe this equals this. What they can't do is move from that to any kind of claim that puts moral uh, duty on someone. Yep. Or that you can't move from an observance of, as you were saying, Smoking is bad for you to then tell someone, well, you shouldn't smoke. Because as soon as they, they can go, I know smoking is bad for me. We all know that. That's an is. We know it. But there's nothing about that that tells me I shouldn't smoke. It's only once you have another value added onto it, which is smoking is bad for you and doing bad things or doing things that is bad for your health is a bad thing. Therefore, do not smoke. That only comes once you add, it, add in that external value that makes the is into an ought. And the interesting thing is that as much as people want to subscribe to this view, it just doesn't work. I mean, we, we live in a world that in many ways has been shaped by subjectivism, but no one really lives like that. And one mm. of the best examples of it is climate change. You know, we all are being told, and I don't necessarily disagree, that we should look after the environment. Of course, mm. we should look after the environment. We're being told that we should. But why? Mm. You know, like who's giving us the why? It's kind of this unspoken thing. Oh, we've got to protect it for future generations. Why? Why should I care about future generations? I'm not going to be around to see Mm. them. Why shouldn't I just live my life as enjoyable as possible, burning as many fossil fuels as possible, just having a great time with all of my pollution? And then when I die, it's not going to matter because I'm not going to be around anyway. There's this idea that we're being told, and I, I agree with it, that there is an ought. The is in that situation is that we humans need... If, if humans are to survive, then the, the, the world needs to be inhabitable. Mm-hmm. And then the ought is, you ought to make sure that the world is inhabitable. But the good is what? The good is survival is good. Mm-hmm. That's what's being said. And no one, and, and where do we get that idea from? Who's telling us that survival is good? Where do we get that from? Mm. And that's the, one of the things that he's about to go on and say. He's going to say, well, one of the places that this seems to come from an answer that the innovator can give maybe an answer that people would give to what i just said who says survival is good is instinct lewis has discussed the fact that the innovator has been looking for some first principles and has been finding them in reason but as you can see this doesn't really 
last, we can ask these questions. Why do we care about preserving society? So that was the first possible option to where the, these values can come from, rationality. The second one that he'll be discussing and ultimately demonstrating to not fulfill the kind of requirements that there are of it to serve as a foundation for value is, as I said, instinct. But the discussion for that will have to wait until next time. So please join us next time as we discuss the second half of this chapter, chapter two of the abolition of man, and we'll continue to discuss what the relevance is for it to the educational project, because of course, that's what this podcast is all about. It's about classical education in Australia. So I trust that you join James and I next time on Educating Humans.